Scale has always been the challenge, and I'm looking for ways in which this network that it's trying to create actually lends scale. We know that Alibaba knows how to scale logistics and last mile delivery and payments and these things. That's core to their capability. Scaling seems to be core of what their messaging is, and I will eagerly await to see how that manifests. So I am here today in Peace Tech Lab with Aubrey Ruby, who is the co-founder at Insider PR, Africa Expert Network, a senior fellow at the Africa Center at the Atlantic Council, and the co-host of the new New Think podcast. Aubrey was really an early believer in the show. I think I connected with her, I believe it, 2017 at Leland's first Africa FinTech Summit, and um Really grateful to have her here for a second time. So thanks for joining us today, Aubrey. Thank you, Andrew, for the invitation. It's always a pleasure. Yeah, for sure. I think there were three people that stand out in my mind as really early on supporters of, of my journey in the podcast. You're definitely one of them. So I really appreciate you know your uh, your warmth to me and just your your openness to help support the the platform. So love to see it grow and excited about all the new things to come uh, in 2020. Yes, me too. But I do want to start this off uh, with a recent article that you wrote in Financial Times, really about how Africa needs to look to India for its digital inspiration. And normally, when people compare Africa to somewhere else, they're comparing Africa to China. And I think there's certainly a lot of parallels between the two, but I can see why you would you would look to India as a way forward, really, for Africa's digital journey. Yeah, I think India is more akin to some of the realities that exist in African markets. Um, while both China and India have a billion people, over a billion people each, and Africa does as well, India is a large, messy federal democracy. And it has a kind of two steps forward, one back trajectory of growth and development, which is very different than the Chinese experience. You know, when China tried to electrify the country, uh, they did it in five years in massive kind of central planning uh, manner. India still struggles with it because of this federalism and because of the unequal development pace across the country. And so I think that India's realities today better reflect a continent that's defined by fragmentation and by all these different political units and cultural units across African markets. So I do think India presents a lot of lessons that might be more applicable to African countries than what the China experience has been over the last 20 years. Mm. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And so I think that the three things you pointed to that article were reducing cost of data, increasing the digital skills, and then increasing uh, corporate venture capital. And I've seen you you do a couple of different articles that Africa's corporates need to be more active in the VC ecosystem. And so like from, from where you sit, like is that do you feel like that's a trend that's happening or is happening fast enough or it's starting to happen. Uh, in South Africa, there's always been some more established corporate venture. For example, the banks and Barclays and others have had corporate venture units or accelerators attached to them. In other markets, say like Nigeria, it's been done more informally, whereby high net worth individuals who happen to be titans of business also kind of invest in friends and family rounds. But what we'd like to see is a greater professionalization of the process and formalization of the process. And it's still early days in Nigeria to see kind of a Dangote Ventures, for example, where they could invest in things in the agricultural supply chain or likewise in you know other industries, oil services or something where the corporates can not only give capital to the startups, but the startups can then also benefit from the corporates' value chains, supply chains, logistics networks, distribution platforms, the things that actually can help the startup reach scale. 
And then the company, the corporate can benefit because they're investing in future disruptive technologies, but they're also investing in technologies that can be absorbed internally into their operations to make them more efficient. So here I'm talking about the kind of software as a service companies like HR software, payroll software, procurement software, and letting those companies that are local and understand the realities kind of fuel efficiency in in the big companies. So still early days, there needs to be much more formalization uh, put into place. I think that's definitely right. And I think that's a, it's a great point. It's not just acting as VCs, but they have to start acting as customers to these startups. Because I think, you know, it's like consumer in Africa. I mean, I tip my hat to anyone who's trying to execute a B2C startup in Africa. Like, I think it was Victor Asimoto that tweeted, you can either get to 100 million in revenue in Africa by selling to 100 million people for $1 or one person for $100 million. Yes, and I, I completely agree. Even in my own uh, investment strategy and my angel investing and and seed state investing, we invest in B2B startups. Mm. And a lot of the companies are in Nigeria starting to look at how they use maybe like Andela services or Flutterwave services and and seeing that is not only good for their business and efficient, but also good for the development of the digital economy in Nigeria. And we see a great story of that in just this past week. Those of you guys have been following on Twitter, uh, Mira Meta and Tomato Jos. In Nigeria, they had their groundbreaking on a tomato processing facility, and that in part was supported by investment from Flour Mills Nigeria in almost Mm. a corporate venture structure. So, of course, Flour Mills Nigeria is a large producer of pasta and what goes well with pasta, but tomato sauce. So this stuff doesn't always have to be just in tech and software. Uh, It can happen in other sectors as well. And for those of you who don't follow Mira on Twitter, I recommend that you do. Mm. So do you know her handle? Uh, I know Tomato Joseph's is directly Tomato. Joseph, okay. but we'll get Mira's in a moment. Well, I, okay, I can plug it in the show notes. Before I move on, I do want to talk about the Africa growth platform that was just announced. But real quick, I, I do want to dive deeper into the, the you know the Africa India comparison. Yes, because- I think there's a ton there. One of the things that has been transformational in the story is the universal ID program um, that India has put in place. So everyone is uniquely identifiable, which in an American context, it's like everyone getting your social security number, and that program has allowed for everything from being able to track your actual consumers to getting rid of ghost workers to you know having an open API where people can build and innovate off of that platform. And so it's called Adhar. And getting that universal ID system in place, I think, is one of the key backbones of what India has been able to do. To And, and why has that been so hard in Africa? You know, Nigeria, let's go back to Nigeria's case, has been uh, an interesting one. They've had several attempts at this, and it's now a current one underway to do an ID program, and it's starting to be implemented. Probably not at the speed it should be, but... It's been difficult over the years because sometimes it's political. And if you actually know how many people you have and can identify them directly, then different things like distributions of power and decentralized distributions of power change is the same in this country. Uh, We wait every year for the census or every 10 years for the census. And that is the basis on which, you know, district lines are drawn and it's very political and gerrymandering takes place. So there's often been a reluctance to do proper census taking in some African countries, Ethiopia, Nigeria, et cetera. So they have very outdated censuses. And then, of course, you do have issues where some people are benefiting from ghost workers and people that don't even exist. And so it's a process of digitizing all of that and making it transparent and clear. And that takes logistical chops. You really have to be able to execute. Uh, It takes political will. 
And I think it's been a combination of those things that have prevented some African countries from doing it. Right. Well, I think it's counterintuitive that Nigeria would be the leader in that because they have so many people. Whereas you have someone like, you know, like Rwanda, like it's, it's much smaller, like it's much easier to. Yeah. To I don't think Nigeria it has been the leader. I was just giving it as an example oh, of, of recent activities right. in the, in the universal ID program. No, the smaller countries definitely have an advantage on it. But uh, even like a Liberian Sierra Leone haven't done a great job at this and they're right. only 4.5 million each. Right. So Rwanda so is, for, if Rwanda is, <laughs> is further along on things of a digital ID. And digital ID then is combined uh, as a backbone for doing things like payment startups, et cetera. And then it brings us to the other infrastructural kind of backbone, which is very cheap data. India mm. has incredibly cheap data, and that's really resulted because of a ton of an investment by mainly one Indian telco, Reliance Joss, and and they've really put so much money to work doing the infrastructure to reduce the cost of data. Now, some people say they were doing it to put out all of their other competitors out of business, but really the Indian consumer benefited. And right now, Africans are paying something like 9% of their monthly income on data on average. And whereas in India, it's less than 2%. And so it's dramatically cheaper. Uh, and that price continues to go down. And data is the lifeblood of a digital economy. So as long as you have expensive data in African markets, you have to make workarounds around it. The cheaper the data get, the more streaming, gaming, those type of companies become viable. Right. So, I mean, do you think that the answer to data is going to be something like Google, you know, flying over their parachutes or like SpaceX launching satellites? Or do you think it's going to require the infrastructure to be really invested in and done on the ground in the traditional way? I think there's no single answer. It's like a lot of development challenges in African markets. The answer is and, 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 and. Mm. You're going to need all of those things to some extent. A lot of the research shows that now there's quite a bit of capacity that's landed through the undersea cables. So at the landing point, uh, a lot of African markets have enough data capacity, but what's missing is the terrestrial infrastructure. So the on-ground and on-land terrestrial infrastructure is where there needs to be more investment. There's probably more governments can do to make for more competition to drive down prices and ensuring that the price of data is a metric by which they're judging the health of the telco industry. And then there's going to be these other solutions, especially for last mile, different like big Wi-Fi zones and whatever, the balloons. And there's all kinds of experiments taking place. But, you know, the question is, as a system as a whole, can you reduce the price, the average price of data? Obviously, if we are prioritizing, I would focus on the price of the data in the cities because that's where more and more people are are living and that's where you're getting the hubs of innovation that are taking the digital economy to the next level. Yeah. I mean, I'm personally surprised I haven't seen more more startups doing micro-grid, micro-internet models. There, there, I know there's one in Nigeria. I'm not sure if you guys are an investor in that. Um, uh, Tizetti or... Tizetti is one, and then I think Wi-Fi.ng was the other one. Uh, well, Wi-Fi.ng, I think, is owned by Tizetti. Um, oh, okay. So that's their Got brand it. in I the uh, space. No, I'm not personally invested, but I know the team, and, I, and what they're trying to do is very important. And those kind of plays have other interesting values, because if the country eventually goes to 5G, you're going to need some of the same infrastructure mm. that they've had to put in place for, for Wi-Fi grids. Right. Because you have to have more towers. 
And so them putting up towers in a variety of, of locations, that is like a backbone for the eventual switch over to 5G. But it's still early days. Yeah, I'm not sure how, how I feel about 5G. I've, I've read some articles that it's not very good for the human body. But at the same time, it, that could also be just Chinese, Chinese propaganda trying to slow us down. I think that, no, I just spent a lot of time in Europe in the last year, and there are a lot of concerns in Europe around the health effects, potential health effects of 5G. Yeah, that's a, that's a topic for another podcast. <laughs> uh, so, so moving on to the a- Africa Growth Platform. So, um, I know you mentioned that this was actually announced a year ago, but really formally kind of pushed forward with uh, Alibaba World Economic Forum and five other founding members this year. And so, they launched the AGP to help 100 million startups and SMEs scale their business operations by 2025. That includes policy reforms, diverse community of investors and building a startup community in and of itself. So is this just more things on paper that won't get implemented, or is this is there some meat to this? Well, the first I heard of it was at the uh, WEF Africa Summit, so in September last year. Okay. And uh, Alibaba is really driving, and Brian Wong is really pushing uh, this platform. And my understanding, I was not at Davos this past couple weeks. I'm still waiting for my future invitation. But <laughs> I understand that they launched a kind of Friends of the Africa Growth Platform, and they've launched a like an advisory board of kind of mm. senior uh, African players that will help shape this. Um, I know that the Friends Network includes people like A.T. Kearney and Dahlberg and Zenith Bank. And so they have players that are involved. It's still early to see what it means from an operational level. I, you know, spent some time on their websites. You click through, they're doing a social media drive to get a lot of startups to kind of fill out a, a survey monkey. I think they're trying to survey the needs uh, mm. or at least survey the space to see yeah. what the needs are. Uh, my understanding is that there are three pillars. One is kind of a government policy piece of it. A second is to kind of mobilize a network of investors. And third is to uh, kind of reach this 100 million SMEs. Now, yeah. Scale has always been the challenge, and I'm looking for ways in which this entity, the the, the network that it's trying to create, actually lends scale. Um, we know that Alibaba knows how to scale logistics and last mile delivery and payments and these things. That's core to their capability. Are they and their partners going to bring those core business capabilities to African startups, or is it going to be like, a platform where people apply and somehow get $5,000 here or $10,000 here. Not that the capital isn't relevant. It's just not really going to directly lead to scale. So scaling seems to be core of what their messaging is. And I will eagerly await to see how that manifests. I was in Accra for Jack Ma and the Netrepreneur events. And that, again, was basically a shark tank and they invested, you know, uh, something like a million dollars in a set of different African startups, the winners of the of the pitch competition. That said, I'm not sure the judges and the players really are sitting there thinking about how they can use other aspects of their platforms, commercial platforms or companies, Alibaba, Tencent, Liquid Telecom, etc., to help these companies actually scale. Mm. 
And that the elusive scale question is is one I think that is now going to really plague the Africa venture space and digital yeah. ecosystem. So the next kind of milestone for this Africa growth platform will be the World Economic Forum Africa, which is going to be held in Ethiopia, supposedly in September. Dates haven't been announced, but I think they will seek to announce other things for this Africa growth platform. So my hope is that it is meaningful and this network of investors they create does you know, bring more capital and partnerships to African startups. But we have to wait and see. Year of return back in November in Ghana looked like a lot of fun. So I hope you had a, a, just as much fun as you had, you know, in, insightful uh, experiences. Yeah, sadly, at the, at I, the miss, I missed Afrochella. I was there a little <laughs> bit before then. Okay. You know, I think it, Afrochella itself and year of return activities show the power of uh, tourism and the cultural right. industries to create economic opportunity. For sure. Yeah, I completely agree. And uh, I think specifically with, with AGP, I mean, my, my biggest kind of confusion concern, every article I would read mentioned the exact wording of a hundred million startups and SMEs. And like the things that startups need are way different than SMEs. You shouldn't lump the two together. I'm not sure how many within that hundred million they're referring to as startups. Probably not that many because there's not a hundred million startups that are, you know, active in Africa. True. And the survey they put forth, I mean, anyone who's, uh, an aspiring entrepreneur can kind of fill it out, right? Mm. Again, I'm not quite right. sure what the mechanism is to to sort through that definitional morass, yeah. which mm. is what exactly you're talking about. Um, you know, SME is dependent on place, country, et cetera. Are you talking about the mom and pop shops? Are you talking about informal enterprises? Or are you talking about, you know, growing startups that are venture-backed? That's, those are different universes, as, as um, I agree with you in that. So something I've been thinking about a lot lately, especially after my last trip to Ethiopia, have you or any of your friends ever tried doing like a roll-up of SMEs in a specific area and like consolidating operations, digitizing operations and making them more efficient? Like has that has that been tried before in your in your knowledge? Um I've seen some startups that have been doing that yeah. for sure. Um I know some folks who are looking at that in the um pharmacy space. Mm. in West Africa. So there are a lot of, you know, mom and pop shop owned pharmacists and, you know, they're not bookkeeping very efficiently. They're not doing things very efficiently right. in terms of their supply chain. So could you buy up several of them? The problem with it is a lot of those things are more suited for a private equity play than a venture mm. uh, because a lot of them involve purchasing real assets. They're, they're kind of capital heavy versus capital light. And often the companies that I see who start in that space looking at roll-ups in various subsectors often end up saying, well, maybe we're just going to be the one that sells uh, pharmacy software to all these pharmacists mm. and not actually own all the pharmacists or take a, a stake in them. So I don't see that strategy as much as one would, one would think. It's been very successful here in the U.S., but yeah. mainly private equity backed versus um, mm. venture backed when you when you need certain returns and you're trying to scale. So it's very operationally intensive uh, to do that kind of thing. That makes sense. Well, um, something I might be interested in trying just just maybe maybe five or six in like one area and doing it and seeing how it goes. I don't know if private equity is what I had in mind, but we'll we'll see how it goes. But I do want to move on to the big news coming out of Nigeria, which is uh, the Lagos state government banning Okada's. And so Okada's is basically these, these motorcycles and they've been banned for commercial use, which really puts a damper on the main players, which is Max.ng, Gokada, and O-Ride, which is one of the subsidiaries within the Opay ecosystem. 
And so um, two questions. First off, what's your take on that? And then second, is there any sensible or reasonable take that paints this as maybe it was actually a smart or a good move for them to do this? Yeah, the issue is one that's not new. This news is new, but the issue of Lego State and the battle against Okadas is an on-again, off-again saga. And part of it because traditionally in Nigeria, the Okada sector has been one dominated by informal guys just taking their motorcycles and giving rides, and it's not been really regulated. So the government always had kind of a binary approach to it because a lot of the informal riders were, you know, violating traffic laws, driving the wrong direction on a street to bypass traffic, uh, not using helmets, like they're not safe. Their approach was instead of trying to like sort through this mess, let's just ban them. And so that has been the case on again, off again in several Nigerian cities, not just Lagos. Uh, and many of the drivers and, you know, the everyday kind of commuters of middle-class Nigeria were kind of happy to see that happen because the informal Okada riders could be a nuisance or a safety issue. So then along comes the more professionalized ride-hailing platforms that are venture-backed. And really what they've been able to do over the last couple years is, you know, raise safety standards. They are using helmets to train drivers so that they're actually better drivers to get and deploy better bikes so that the bikes themselves are safer um, and to give kind of a consumer experience that is akin to, you know, what an Uber or someone else gives, whereas the passenger can see who is this person who's picking me up. If they if something happens and, the, and there's an, an issue, a violent issue, then they can track who is with the person. So it gives a lot of benefit. Um, but that said, those Max and Gokata and O-Ride have been working with the state to try to figure out the best way to regulate. But that said, some of the informal guys still exist. And so it's been this kind of reactionary thing that, that took place this week where they said, we're going back to an old law and not allowing the Okadas to go across certain bridges or highways, et cetera. And the old law that they refer to is a 2018 law that said that bikes under 200cc engines were not allowed. Um, Max and Gokata, I'm not sure about O-Ride, but Max and Gokata have bikes that are above 200 cc's, so they're 220 cc's. So they should be legal, and they've been building their business and complying with that 2018 law. So this new announcement that starting February 1, there's going to be these new bans is a disconcerting kind of effort because they keep moving the goalpost. Yeah, or they didn't, they said that the, the ban is based on the 2018 law, but if you go back to the 2018 law, it's about the size of engine and the Max bikes and the Gokata bikes are already above that size of engine. So there's a lack of clarity right now on how it's going to be implemented. And even if Max and, and Gokata can get around the ban somehow, it probably means that their riders will be more harassed by police, et cetera. They'll inject a lot of uncertainty, which kind of hurts everyone in the ecosystem. It hurts passengers because passengers were liking these services because it provides a form of quote unquote public transportation. They, the people pay for it, but there's not like, there's no metro system in Lagos. The, the idea that the private sector is going to have to kind of perform public transport duties is a reality in Nigeria. And so the, the, the passengers were liking the new safety standards, the trackability, traceability, payment mechanisms of the uh, Max and Gokata bikes. 
And then the riders were getting more opportunity. They were getting actually the ability to lease and own and finance bikes. Right. Um, they were getting training to improve their skills. And then Lego State was getting a system where it was bringing in uh, outside investment and standardizing something. So for me, it seems to be an unfortunate turn of events. And hopefully the companies and government will be able to sort out it because th these type of things, the devils are in the details. Yeah. And I really believe that this is an example of where the business community, the startup community can create better societies, better development, better economies, because there will always be tension between business and government. And that happens in every country in the world. And it's in that kind of back and forth and friction that you get good policy. And what I hope happens is that in that friction, the Lego state government has to figure out a way to actually more properly regulate and not just use this blunt instrument of banning or not banning to deal with the issues of informality in the space, et cetera. So, you know, I, I think these things in the mobility sector are not going to be isolated across African markets, whether it's dealing with the minibuses or the Okadas or Bodabodas, as they're called in, in East Africa. I mean, transport has always been an area of kind of mafia activity, whether it's like the medallion taxis in New York City. There's lots of examples of countries around the world where transport was really governed by kind of unions and mafia and, and a lot of very difficult groups to navigate. And I think that's true across African markets. So I unfortunately don't think this is an isolated incident. Yeah. I mean, I think any innovation that can be introduced to market that can allow for people to be on time to meetings in Lagos is much needed. Like I know for me, like I'm very, very particular about being on time to meetings here in DC. But when I was in Lagos, there wasn't one meeting where I was on time or even within like 15, 20 minutes of the start time, especially when I was going from Acacia to, to VI, like it took me like two and a half hours. I was an hour late to the meeting and I left early, right? And so anyways, whether it's the bikes or do you know how Uber's water taxis are going? I think it's still early days and Golkata is launching water taxis too. Okay. Um, I, I, was, really I was in good. Lagos in December and I'm headed there again in 10 days time and then again in March. Mm. And when I was there in December, right before the Christmas, I was looking for them too. I was looking yeah. and being like, where do we, where's an Uber <laughs> boat? I want to see an Uber boat yeah. because I've taken Uber boats in Istanbul mm -hmm. and they, they're super efficient there, but that's also because they have a lot of um, areas you can get on and off. You know, different bars and restaurants right. have their own kind of docking area. Mm. Uh, that's what I was asking uh, folks in, in Lagos is like, where are you going to be able to get on and off? And how is it going to work? Because just because they drop you off at a bridge, now you're going to need another form of transport. So that's also why like Uber Boats almost needs the motorcycle guys also to exist. Because what you're going to get off the boat and then you still have to go that last mile, right. you would hop on an Okada. So you're going to need a multiple transport options for to complete the trip from point A to point B. And the ride hailing motorcycle piece of it is just one part of it. But eliminate that one part and the whole, the, the whole chain gets weak. So these are all about transport in growing cities like Lagos. The, the issues are not going to go away and you can't just build a metro. And there's no sense that there's going to be a public transport option that's going to be viable. So everyone's going to have to figure out it on your own. And these ride hailing platforms of motorcycles were one of the most efficient ways. Yeah. What do you think is Opay's next move based on this? Do you think they double down on other Nigerian cities? Do you think they double down on like Ghana or another city or you know, what, what do you think they do? I mean, I think all of the players, Opay, 
I mean, O-Ride and Gokata and, and Max were trying to diversify across cities by nature. They were mm-hmm. already doing that. I know Max was active in Ondo State and others were going to other cities to try to diversify their experience and risk. And so that is definitely part of their plan. I think all of them want to see this market work. They have investors that are going to push and want to see it. So I do think they will find a way to move forward. It's just a question of what cost. Uh, there have been a number of reports coming out on the venture ecosystem this past year in Africa. Uh, I know you had brought up the Partec venture report, uh, which seems to be the m- most robust one. But I guess you know, let's let's dive into that. So, what are I mean, what are your takeaways from from that report? Yeah, the, there have been three or four major reports that have come out in the last uh, month and a half or so that really give us a view of the venture space of 2019 in African markets. And again, I think the clearest thing we can say is that it's growing and it's growing quickly. And that's very exciting. The African venture space is about five years old in any meaningful way. My book uh, that I wrote with J- Jake Bright of TechCrunch uh, that came out in 2015. So now we really have like a five-year perspective on it. And, and we wrote a chapter saying, will there be you know, an Africa tech industry? Yes, there's an Africa tech industry. And that was kind of edgy at that time. And now five years later, we can say, yeah, it's there and it's there to stay. And it's growing year on year, almost doubling year on year. Uh, the ranges of the reports that I've seen are kind of between 1 billion to 2 billion of venture money raised. Partech being on the, on the big side of over 2 billion and then, uh, disrupt and the great work that Max Bayon has done tracking, uh, the startup rounds have put it more over like 1, 1.2 billion raised. And, you know, I think it, the devil's in the details when it comes to the methodology and what's being counted. The issue is that this, these are still relatively small numbers. And so what happens then if Partech chooses to include a few deals, a few large deals, that's how they get that much bigger number. So Partech included raises by Tala and Branch and Zipline in their numbers, which, you know, some would see as later stage venture, if not, you know, more, more mature. And that's, of course, partly why you get a much bigger number with Partech. So it's kind of which companies you include in your numbers, but, you know, 250 deals, it's all very exciting. And, you know, Max has created an incredible database that people can buy, downloaded. You can download and see all the companies, nearly a hundred that raised more than a million dollars in 2019. And so it's a great work. You should follow Max Bayon on uh, Twitter and see his work. And then you can check out the Partech report. Like I said, it came out this past week. And I think the Partech guys are completely right in arguing that we're at a five-year stage in the maturity of the venture industry. What we really need now are exits. We really need to see what the returns are going to be for some of the early stage investors. And that will help to bring exponential growth in the capital available. Even in my own kind of business dealings, I've talked to so many potential interested investors with very serious money out of the US or Asia. And their one question is like, where are the exits? Can you give us a sense of what the returns are going to be? And yeah, we've had Jumia, but we know how that's performed. Um, you know, we've had, you, you can say Frontier Cars Group that owns Cars 45, maybe a partial exit for some investors. There's just not been enough exit data out there to show what the returns are. And that's what's going to need to like take it to the next level. And then more stories of startups 
successfully going across border and mm. scaling successfully across border. Because a lot of the valuations that startups are raising on are dependent on assumptions of scale that are cross border right. in nature. And, you know, we're starting to see that. You see Lydia going not just in Nigeria, but in Czech Republic and uh, Slovakia. You see carbon going across borders. Cars 45, you see now in, in Ghana and Kenya, in addition to Nigeria. Is, is Paga still going for Mexico? Paga still going for Mexico, has a team in Ethiopia. And so this next wave of kind of expanding startups will be key to the, the, the maturity of the industry as well. I see a lot of Egyptian startups that are expanding not only into neighboring countries, but into the Middle East. And it's not just Africa expansion, it's it's pan-emerging market expansion. And that'll allow companies to get to that next level of valuation and allow larger amounts of money to come into the industry, to the ecosystem. So all very exciting. In fact, the venture space, I think, is the most exciting thing going on in African markets right now. You know, in a macro environment whereby South Africa is basically in recession, Nigeria is underperforming on the growth side. Ethiopia is going into very difficult elections and some of the political challenges there. The growth picture for the macro sense is not as robust as it should be to deal with the job creation needs and the poverty issues. So really the brightest spot in all of this is venture and it, it's growing. And, you know, Stephen Ding from um, Delft Lab is looking at Africa venture in comparison to that of Southeast Asia. And using Partech numbers, it shows that, you know, African venture space is beyond what in Indonesia and the other Southeast Asian countries attracted five years ago. So maybe we're about five years behind Southeast Asia. And his work's been really great as well. So I know Andrew will share all their Twitter handles in the notes, but I do hope that you check out some of these key thought leaders on Twitter. Yeah, for sure. And thank you for the reminder. Uh, I need to give a huge congratulations to Adam Abate, who is the co-founder and CEO of Apposite in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, who was just acquired by Paga. Um, so that's another great story of one African startup acquiring another for a meaningful size. But Aubrey Ruby, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's been my pleasure.